Scripture reading will be from Psalm 40, 16, and 17. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. should be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Psalms and Psalm 40 is where we will begin our study in Psalm 40th Psalm there. In this particular Psalm, David writes about God's blessings for the person who trusts in the Lord. And he speaks about that, how that might manifest itself in many different ways. And one of the ways that I think it has expressed itself today is in our coming together to worship God. It's a privilege to be here this morning. It's a blessing to see you. And I think that we have been seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth this morning. And glad that you are a part of that. And we have those who are visiting with us. We're especially grateful that you are here in our number this morning. But as David is writing this psalm about the blessings upon, about the person who trusts in the Lord, he speaks about how that would manifest itself not through just worship, but also through obedience to God. In verse 40, he says, how or verse 4, rather, he says, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Skipping down to verse 8, he, this blessed person, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And that is quoted in the book of Hebrews as a fulfillment uh, through Jesus Christ. But that should be the aim of each and every person here, that we want to do the will of God. And as the psalm closes out in verse 16, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. That the nature of our salvation and our relationship with the Lord is to be such that we would give rejoicing to the Lord. That those who have true, genuine faith in God, they are going to express joy to God. To seek God and to rejoice in Him. And as he closes in verse 17, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. For the person who has true faith in God, there's going to be a sense of joy in their life. Imagine for a moment, though, if you know someone in your life that has no joy, that finds no delight, no satisfaction in life. Can you truly describe that person as a person of faith? I think that's what David is challenging us here to consider in this psalm. 
And as we have passages in the New Testament, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, rejoice always. For someone who has little to no faith, or at least a very shallow faith, that command seems impossible, doesn't it? To rejoice always, to rejoice at all times? How can I do that? And that's the question that I want us to really explore this morning. How can we have joy at all? Why is joy a command? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, it is stated as an imperative statement. It's a requirement of us. Why is joy even able to be commanded? Why should an emotion be commanded? I think it begins with recognizing who the Lord is because He is Himself joy. If we are told to rejoice always and rejoice in the Lord, then why? How is that even possible? Have you ever wondered where our emotions come from? You know, sometimes we deal with an array of emotions. You just deal with a toddler and you see an array of emotions all the time, don't you? You see them go from anger to sadness to frustration to uh, resentment. Last night I was reading a, a book to Zeke. It was um, a Star Wars book. I'm a big Star Wars fan. It was a Star Wars book, but it was about emotions and the different emotions. And it was Trust Your Feelings. You know them to be true. That's the name of the book there and for some of my Star Wars friends. But the book was all about your feelings and your emotions and at the end we went over the emotions that Zeke felt throughout the day and boy it was a lot we have emotions we're emotional beings and that's not a bad thing that's natural because that's how God created us in the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 1 in Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 27 it says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Being created in the image of God, it allows us to share in some of the same emotions that God feels. I don't know if you've ever thought about that very much. But I want you to think about it with me for a little bit this morning. That we are able to share in many of the emotions that God Himself feels. And that He has shared with us. Perhaps you know very easily in the, gospel, in the New Testament, in the book of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4, in 1 John chapter 4 and in verse 16, here's what the Apostle here writes. He says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. That God is the full expression of what love is. A self-giving, a self-sacrificing love. That's what God is the epitome of. And so God, He expresses love, especially seen in the sacrifice of His Son. His love for the world to rescue them from sin. To rescue us from the snare of the devil. 
We also see that God is gracious, that God He has expressed His grace through Jesus. We've also seen that God is grieved and sorrowful. That's something that we may not think about very much, but God, He expresses His grief and His sorrow in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, early on in the pages of our Bible, as God had created this world and it became very corrupt, it was filled with sin, You'll remember that he decided that he was going to destroy the earth and kind of start over again. And he was going to do that through Noah. And he was going to flood this world and yet he was going to save Noah and his family because he was a good man. Noah had found favor in the sight of God. But in Genesis chapter 6, I want you to notice in verse 5, just the words of emotion here. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Think about those words, sorrow and grief, that God feels those emotions. Have you ever been sorry that you did something maybe it was you did a, a thoughtful kind gesture and it wasn't returned and it wasn't appreciated and you were sorry you did that if you've ever if you've never felt that then I'm, I'm thankful you have haven't felt that but God has felt it I would venture to guess you have felt it too have you ever grieved over losing somebody or losing an item that you might have had? God grieves. God has shown grief. God also gets angry. I think that sometimes is a surprise to many people, but He does express His anger in a very holy way, in a righteous way. But it is anger nonetheless. In the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 32, in Exodus chapter 32, the children of Israel, they had uh, begun to worship a golden calf at Mount Sinai after they had already received the law, after they had said that they would do what God had, would reveal to them. And yet, here they are, they have broken and violated the first two commandments right away. And in Exodus chapter 32 and in verse 11 it says, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses, he begins to implore on behalf of the children of Israel. But he recognizes that God is not happy. God is angry. And he recognizes that. And so he pleads on Israel's behalf. And then God does something else that might surprise us. That God changes His mind. Have you ever changed your mind about something? 
Men, don't give your wives grief about that because this is something that God does. God changes His mind sometimes. In verse 12, Moses continues on, Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent He brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Moses is specifically asking God to change his mind here. God is ready to wipe Israel out. And yet Moses, he's the one pleading on their behalf. He says in verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed His mind about the harm which He said He would do to His people. God changes His mind. If He doesn't change His mind, then what's the point and purpose and the plan in praying to God? If everything is so fixed and determined from here on out, then why would you ever ask God to save someone who is sick from dying? God changes His mind. That's, that can come from an emotion that we feel. And so if you have ever felt love for someone, or if you've ever received love from someone, or if you've ever been shown grace and mercy or kindness, if you've ever been grieved, if you've ever gotten angry or frustrated, or if you've ever changed your mind about something, you are doing that because your Creator made you capable of doing all of that. And so you think in relation to this whole idea of rejoice, to have joy in your life, one of the reasons that you were able to do that is because He is the expression of joy. And in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 16, in Psalm 16, this is a messianic psalm that is where David is prophesying of the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus would be raised from the dead, and how God would not abandon him. But the close of that, at the end of that psalm, in Psalm 16 and verse 11, there's a truth that we find about God. It says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Think about that statement there in the middle of that psalm. In your presence is fullness of joy. Wherever God is, there's joy. In heaven, there's joy. C.S. Lewis, he once wrote that joy is the serious business of heaven. That heaven is uh, all about Expressing joy. That God's presence, it just radiates and it magnifies this sense of joy. And so it's no wonder that 
God wants us to be able to, jo to express joy. And we are capable in the first place of even being able to do that because God Himself is joy. And so we need to begin to reframe our thought this morning. It's not just, can we express joy? Yes, we can. Because God has made us that way. He has given us the ability to express joy. But we also need to reframe our thinking into being not just about what makes me joyful. We need to start thinking, what does... What makes God rejoice? What makes God happy? And whatever makes Him happy, whatever causes Him to rejoice, that is what should cause me to rejoice. Now whatever would bring joy to God, whatever would bring joy to the Lord in heaven, that is what should bring joy to my life as well. There are a couple of things that I want us to explore this morning. And the first is that God rejoices when sinners are saved. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in the 15th chapter. In Luke chapter 15, it's a wonderful chapter where Jesus gives three parables and they all are all essentially expressing the same idea. Something is lost and something is found. And once that item is found, there's rejoicing, there's celebration, there's cause for happiness. You'll remember that there's the parable of the lost sheep. In Luke chapter 15, in verse 3, it says, So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then verse 7 is really the teaching principle here. I tell you that there that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who rep repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This man, he has a hundred sheep. He loses one of them. And he searches for it. And when he finds it, he rejoices. He's excited. He's happy about it. And he calls, calls all his friends to come and to be happy about it as well. And he says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who would repent than 99 persons who need no repentance. Then you have the parable of the lost coin. There's a woman who has ten silver coins and she loses one of them and we might be able to think, well, she still has nine. She still has 90%. She's only lost 10% of what she had. She sweeps that house looking for it, searching diligently. And she finds it and she calls for her friends and her neighbors to rejoice with her. And in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God 
over one sinner who repents. And then you get sort of the granddaddy of them all in the end of Luke chapter 15, the parable of what we might t typically call the prodigal son. I like calling it the, pro the parable of the lost son, though. And you probably need to make that plural in, in the story, too. But the parable of the lost son, where he is at home and he treats his father as good for nothing. He asks for his inheritance early. He leaves. And then he decides after a while, after things get bad enough that he needs to go home, that he had it pretty good. And he decides that and he goes back home and he re he confesses his fault to his father. And in Luke chapter 15, in beginning at verse 23, it says, As the father is calling on his slaves and his servants to bring out the robe and to put out the fattened calf, he says in verse 23, Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. In verse 32, he said, the father speaking to his older son, he said, but we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Something lost, something dead has been found. It's brought to life again. And the point is, very clear, after you read this whole chapter, it's all about rejoicing over that thing that was lost. And this is all illuminating what is happening in heaven. In verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven. Why is there joy in heaven? Heaven's just a place, right? Uh, I think that's where Jesus is speaking more than about just a place. He's speaking about the people who are in heaven. That is God and the angels. Isn't that what he says in verse 10? He says, in the same way, I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then don't forget this, don't lose sight of this, in the parable of the lost son, who is it that is causing the joy and the celebration? It's the Father. The Father begins to rejoice. The point being is that whenever there is someone who is saved, when someone comes to repent, there is joy in heaven because God is filled with joy. When someone comes to Christ and is baptized and, is, and their sins are washed away, God is happy because of that decision. It's easy for us to think of God as sort of the CEO of a big, major corporation, isn't it? Where He's very hands-off. You know, if you work for a big business or a big corporation, you may not know the CEO, because the CEO, he's probably just, his main concern is looking at the, the bottom line, right? He's concerned about what is best for the company financially. And he's concerned about the operations of the whole entire business. 
He may not be as concerned about the minimum wage worker that he doesn't really care about. We may think of God like that sometimes, don't we? That's not the picture of God that we have here. What we learn here is that what causes joy for God is you. When you repent and come to the Lord, maybe it's like you know God. And you have been baptized, but you left the Lord for a time. And, he, and you decide to come back eventually. God celebrates you. God is concerned about you personally. And He cares about our decision to follow Him. God rejoices when sinners are saved and we need to rejoice when sinners are saved. Then we also see in Luke chapter 10, Jesus... What causes him to rejoice? Jesus, being God in the flesh, we can also look at his emotions. In Luke chapter 10, and in verse 21, it says that at very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And what had happened just in the previous 21 verses or so is that Jesus had sent out the 70 to go preach to the house of Israel. And they come back with a good report. In verse 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. They have a positive report that we have a lot of power. People are hearing us and recognizing us. And so in verse 21, it says, At that very time, He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise You, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in Your sight. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son, and, to, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Turning to the disciples, verse 23, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. What brings Jesus great joy is whenever you come to understand the Gospel. When you come to understand God's will. When you come to understand that mystery that has been hidden and that has now been revealed. That is what brings Jesus great joy. So much that he would say, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. You think about what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1. 
In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, he says this. In verse 19, he says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, of, of Holy Spirit spoke from God. Apostle Peter says that he was guided and that the New Testament authors were guided and led by the Holy Spirit to speak the words of God. And the Holy Spirit moved them so that they spoke from God. And so what Peter is acknowledging that what he is writing in his words, they're not just something that have been fabricated by man. There is the authority of God Almighty behind them. But then I think there's a secondary lesson there. When he says in verse 19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. If I were to turn off the lights here, and then, what is it? Turn on that light. That light. We could all see that, couldn't we? You can see it right now, can't you? But it would shine even greater in darkness. You can see that, can't you? Peter says that when you pay attention to that Word that is here in Scripture, you see it like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Can you go outside in wee hours of the morning and see the sun rise or can you go outside late at night and see the sun set you can can't you just as you are able to do that you can understand what is in god's word just as you can observe the, the rising and the setting of the sun or a light in a dark room you can understand god's word I think that's implicit in Peter's point, but what is implicit there, Paul says very explicitly in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 4, as Paul is talking about the revelation of this mystery, he says in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 3, he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. 
That when we read and understand, we can know God's will. It doesn't take a preacher to tell you and explain to you God's will. It doesn't take a priest. It doesn't take someone specially trained that went to some seminary or some school with a lot of letters behind their name. That's not what is required for anyone to understand God's Word. It takes an honest heart who is willing to examine the truth and to put it into action. And that is why Jesus was so happy. And that's why He was rejoicing greatly in the Holy Spirit when people heard the truth and heard the revelation and the preaching of the Gospel. And people were responding favorably to it. Jesus rejoiced. When we hear the Gospel, when we are seeking to learn God's Word, God rejoices when you hear it and you understand it and you apply it to your life. I think those are two things that bring God great and immense joy. When sinners are saved and when we come to understand the Gospel. And so when you think about God as the giver of joy, He is the essence of joy. He is the one who radiates joy perfectly. Therefore, as a result of that, we are to rejoice. That is one of the reasons that I think we have chosen as our theme this year, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Rejoice always. Because if you believe in God, if you trust in Him, then your life should be filled with joy. Even on days, and we'll talk some more about this throughout the year, but even on days when you don't feel much like giving a lot of joy to someone, or feeling a lot of joy. You can do it because God is the author and the giver of joy. And the reason that it is commanded of us, the reason that it is expected of us, is because He created it. And He created us capable of rejoicing. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The reason that that is a command that is possible is because God is the giver and the creator of joy. God created us to share in many of His characteristics. His grace and His love. Anger and joy. And He has made us with the ability to know and to express joy. I asked you at the beginning of our lesson if you could imagine someone who's never willing to show their joy. 
Now imagine someone who cannot express joy in any way. Imagine someone who has no joy in their life because they can't express it at all. Do you think they are living up to the full potential for which God wants for them? In Psalm 118, in Psalm 118, and in verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The day in which he is speaking of, I think, is the day of Christ. The day of the Messiah. The Messiah Jesus has come. You can have joy today. Because today is the day of salvation. Repent and come to Christ. Hear and understand the Gospel. And then you can express and enjoy the beauty of God's salvation. This morning, if you need to respond in obedience to the Gospel of Jesus Christ by being baptized in water, we're happy to help you. The water is ready. It may be that you have been baptized, but you've not been living faithfully for the Lord. You need to repent and confess your sins. We're here to help you and encourage you in some way. Would you come now as we stand and as we sing?